Well, today, no surprise, we continue our march through 1 Corinthians, and each week we've probably dropped some uh, tidbits, some knowledge about the city of Corinth. It was full of people, full of rich people, full of immigrants, full of up-and-comers, full of people that were uh, there to make a name for themselves, who uh, a lot of immigrants and all, and uh, it was a, a, a polytheistic society, a religiously plural society with lots of Greek and Roman gods. I can relate. Through the years, people tell me, they told me a lot, you know, Robert, you remind me of a Greek god and uh, just chiseled the way I am. But I just, I give glory to God and just a lot of time at the gym. And, uh, but there are Greek and Roman gods. The most famous was Epaphrodite. She was the goddess of sex. Of course, she was the most famous in Corinth and would be in Vegas and places like that today. But they, goddess of sex, beauty, and fertility, I should say. So she was like the top god of the time. But Zeus is the one that we have a, a, lot of a, a, a lot of attention has been drawn in modern day times to Zeus. Apollo, this is a temple I'm going to show you. There, it's a, a lot of this has remained, and this gives you a picture of Corinth and its history. It's fascinating to note that via uh, Neolithic pottery discoveries, that Corinth has been a city that existed, uh, some estimate to be uh, as far back as uh, 6500 B.C., and at the time, of course, a, a much different city, but it was a growing city. It was an important city back then, as cities uh, could be uh, that ancient of time. But at the end of the Hellenistic period, the beginning of the Roman period, uh, they came through and they burned. They just burned the city of Corinth, as it was known at the time, to the ground. They killed the men and they sold the women and children into slavery. And for 100 years, this place was a wasteland until... 100 years later would be, that was when 146 B.C. In 46 B.C., a man that everybody's heard of, Julius Caesar, issued a decree throughout the land, and he said that we must rebuild Corinth. And so in that first century in particular, with rulers, emperors uh, like Tiberius and Claudius, there was massive building projects underway. Of course, there were no photos back then. Very few remnants remain of a lot of that, but artists have... Um, Artists with historians have rendered things. You can find this on some uh, Bible sites. They've give, rendered what, um, you know, offering you to use your imagination of what these projects would have been like in Corinth. It's very impressive. And I know some of us, it's easy for us in 2023 to kind of look here and go, ah, oh, you know, that was not impressive to us. I mean, look at what we're building. But, I mean, are y'all impressed with the Egyptians and their pyramids in 2023? I mean, come on. Uh, th this was impressive stuff, and you saw it in Corinth. It had overtaken Athens in its socioeconomic, political, cultural, influence. And into this city, uh, Paul writes, and if you were a first century, if you were a first century Corinthian, you, um, and you came to faith in Jesus, quickly thereafter, you would be overwhelmed with the sense that the culture of Corinth is vastly different than the culture of Christ. Many, many examples of that, but Corinth was a place of social status, of ladder climbing, of you want to make it, you, you move here, and you can make it in Corinth. Uh, there was one man, Bobbius Philemon, and Bobbius Philemon, there, uh, some stuff remained of him today, some inscriptions of archaeology stuff, and he had built something. He was a slave who acquired his freedom and worked his way up to becoming a city official, and with this building boom, uh, during, during Tiberius and Claudius era, during this building boom, he lined his pockets. And so he went from, I, I work for the man, to uh, I am the man, and people work for me. And he lined his pockets, he became very wealthy, and he built something that uh, they've discovered even uh, in the late 1900s, where he, this marvelous structure that he built, on the bottom it says, I built this, built 
built by me and built for me. Now, we would go, that's pretty arrogant. I'd, I'd drive a Ford truck, and what do we say? Built Ford tough. And my wife may be laughing on the front row because my truck wouldn't start late last night. And so I had to walk home. She, she would have given me a ride. I said, I got this, babe. I'll just walk home. But it's built Ford tough, and I'm going to have it towed uh, tomorrow morning. But uh, Ford says, we built this. And there, there's inscriptions around back then that say, we built this. And it was a place to say, I'm going to pull myself up and gain my freedom and climb the ladder and look at the greatness. I'm building an altar to myself. And into this, if you're an early follower of Jesus, you struggled with that culture. You struggled with that culture because to follow Jesus meant you were a bit of an alien and an oddball. And I want to say to you, to everybody, especially the young people, if you're going to follow Jesus, acknowledge on the front end that you live in a culture, a culture that wants to take you and squeeze you into its mold, Romans chapter 12, and shape you and form you. And so to follow Jesus with its, its love and freedom and joy and peace and purpose, with all that Jesus gives, you will feel like an alien and an oddball at times. Uh, I feel like an alien and an oddball as we look at our culture. And so those early Jesus followers, even though they're not modern and sophisticated like us, they dealt with many of the same things that we dealt with. And are we going to get squeezed into the mold of the status-seeking, ladder-climbing culture? How many of you have a family where either through your immediate family or family reunion... You know what a kid's table is. Anybody know what a kid's table is? And you've, you've maybe done time at the kid's table, and now you, you, know, you cook a meal or you have a meal cooked, and you, you send the little people to the kid's table. And they're not big and adult like you. That's the big dining room table. And you send them to the kid's table. And I've, you know, I'm the youngest in my family. I just have an older sister. But when we would get together with family gatherings, I'm younger than she, and, and then I had cousins who were older than me. So I was like the punk kid uh, at, the, at the kid's table. And I was probably at the kid's table on several um, measuring sticks. Age, size, social maturity, all that. But I was relegated to the kid's table. But imagine, imagine living in first century Corinth. And imagine that there was a table that people wanted to be. A table for the important people, for the adults. But there was a card table, a kid's table. And you weren't separated by age. Because this is kids, grandkids, nephews, and nieces are all at the kid's table. Nobody's really bucking the system. You get it. Little people in little seats at a little table. But imagine that you were separated not by age, but you were separated by status. And that's the world of Corinth, a Greco-Roman world where Roman dining protocol was in full effect. Remember we said this a few weeks ago, if you were a first century Christian in Corinth, no way was saying, hey, mom and them. Hey, I'm a you know, second, third generation. My grandparents led me. No, nobody. They, these were all new believers at the time that Paul is writing. Acts 18 tells us that Paul and Timothy and Silas and these people, men and women, planted the church in Acts 18. He was there for, uh, in Corinth rather, uh, told, t- told us in Acts 18. He moves on after 18 months to plant other churches. Chloe, one of the leaders in the house churches, they didn't have buildings back then like we do. Uh, she writes and tells them of some of the divisions. Chloe's household, he had heard about it. And so he writes to them with these concerns, but he's writing to them saying, hey, there's a vast difference between the culture of Corinth and the culture of the cross. And it was depicted uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but it helps to know this a little bit. And real quickly, here's the, here's the kind of the setup in the wealthier homes. Remember church buildings, there was temples and synagogues, and Luke chapter 5 tells us that Jesus went to the, to, to the temple regularly as was his custom. So come to church. Church buildings are good. But the church grew and flourished in this time of the world, in this part of history, 
in large part because people opened up their homes. And just like in our day, it's kind of cool when someone opens up their home and says, hey, y'all want to come? And if they have a big home, that's even better, isn't it? We're having something called around the table. You don't have to have a big house to host people. Some of the best times are in normal, smaller homes. That's good, but it's, it's fun when someone opens up their house. We had a young adult uh, event of several months ago at the castle across the street just because someone we knew was renting the castle and they got kicked out and now they're selling it for a couple million dollars or whatever. But a church ought to buy me that castle, don't you think? What's the price going down? Y'all pray about that. But anyway, the, it's fun. when. And so what happened in Corinth with these early believers is that people were hosting people in their homes. And sometimes the people that were hosting people in their homes lived in castles or lived in nice homes. And there was something um, in, in the setup of Roman dining protocol, Roman hospitality, uh, called the triclinium. And that triclinium, you can derive... Um, it's meaning from its word, tri meaning three, and clinium meaning recline. So there was like, picture with me, I, I can't replicate it, but picture with me, like a long sofa or seating area here, a long sofa or seating area here, and then the third one right here. So tri, clinium, tri, three places for people to recline. There was three places for important people to be comfortable, and it faced the atrium or, or the outside or the courtyard. And what was happening, as Paul writes 1 Corinthians 11, he says that... Um, you're, you're called to be following Jesus, but the way you're hosting parties and the way you're inviting people and the way you're sitting and everything, you're being conformed more to Corinth than the way that Jesus showed us. And so look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17. It says this, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Two things there. Number one, you remember last week when Paul, he opens the 11th chapter by saying, follow me as I follow Christ, which is what I said. Every, every leader in the church should be able to say that. You're not saying you're perfect. We'll get there in a moment. You're, and I'm not perfect, but you, 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 I should be able to stand up here. Uh, my wife should be able to sit there. Leaders, if you're a staff or elder or deacon or lead a group, you should be able to say along with me, hey, follow me as I follow. I'm going to stumble along the way, but I'm following Jesus. So if you follow me, you'll see me following Jesus. And every leader should be able to say that. If you're not a Christian, you can sit this one out. You can just listen to us. But if, so Paul says that, and then he goes, hey, here's some things I'm going to praise you for. Because he knew he was about to lower the boom. He's going to talk about women and head coverings and praying and prophesying, all these hard things that we talked about last week. And I'm, I'm still here. But anyway, we, we, he, taught, he said, i got some things to praise you. And he, so he praised them. But here, in verse 17, he's going, but what I'm about to talk to you about, nothing praiseworthy here. And he says something that kind of scares the bejesus out of me. He says, in your meetings, for your meetings, do more harm than good. Could it be that religious people could gather and that would be a reality? Even if we intend to do good, we could actually do harm. You think of Amos chapter 5 that says, you know, you gather and you sing your songs. But if justice doesn't flow like a river then your singing and your cymbals and all that, all that's in vain. All your, you can raise your hands in worship and take a lap and swing from the chandeliers at church. But if you're not doing justice and you're not you know, breaking the chains of those who are oppressed, then your gathering is in vain. So that's a stern warning from the prophet Amos. Well, Paul drops some Old Testament thunder here to the first century church in Corinth. And he says, hey, your gatherings are doing more harm 
than good. So real quickly, God loves a gathering. Let's look. We could go all day on this, but just rapid fire, okay? Keep up with me upstairs. The Lord gave me two stone tablets. This is Moses, inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain, on the fire, and on the what? The day of the assembly. Numbers 14, Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly, gathered there. Second Chronicles 6, 3, while the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. Joel 2.16, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Psalm 149 verse 1, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of his faithful people. Let's just say God loves it when his people gather. We took 22 weeks to flatten the curve and keep people from spraying respiratory droplets on each other. We stayed online only, and I was dying figuratively to get people back in the room, and I was praying that you would come back, and I was praying that our beloved doctors and leaders would allow us to come back because I know at my core that uh, Romans 13 is true, love does no harm. We, we wanted to harm nobody, but I know uh, we do a lot of harm when we don't gather. We do a ton of harm when we isolate and lock down from each other. Uh, the assembly really matters. But he writes to them and says, I don't have, what I'm about to talk to you about, I got nothing to praise you on. Your meetings, God's people ought to meet. But you can meet in such a way where you do more harm than good. So quickly, I want to divide this sermon into three parts. And the first part is this. You'll see it in massive font on the screen. It's this, what went wrong? The first part of this sermon of 1 Corinthians 11, what went wrong? Let's look. And you'll see, I think, beginning in verse 20 of chapter 11. So then when you come together, that's a good thing, the assembly, the gathering, just like they did back in the old, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Wait, what? We're taking communion. We're doing the Lord's Supper. And you're saying we're not? He says, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. You have somebody, you have some people that are hungry and you have some people that are tipsy. You have some people that are overserved, and you have some people that are underserved. And you have some people that they're making this kind of a private, they're acting like it's a private supper, and they're not welcoming people. They're not, wel they're not rolling out the mat. And can you see now, church, we ought to have fire in our bosom. We ought to have passion deep down in our gut to say, let's not be that kind of church. Where you come through these doors, or you come to a group, and you're not welcome, and you, you wonder, and I, I joke with the first service that you... you um, you have an environment, a work environment maybe, where you have a little saying called the meeting after the meeting, where you're like, you know, you go to the meeting, it started at 6.30, and everybody was there, and they had an agenda, the email, you know, agenda was emailed out prior to, and you decided, you had minutes, someone was taking copious notes, and you'd made these, and then you, then a few people walk down the hall, and they're having the meeting after the meeting, and you're like, okay, what are y'all talking about? Get back in here. Y'all, are you undercutting? What, what happened here? That, that's never happened at Fonder Church. I've heard stories at other churches where that's actually happened, but never here, praise God. But listen, a, a meeting after a meeting is in large part not healthy, right? Well, so is a private supper before the big supper. Now, we have guests. We have people welcoming guests. Our staff, uh, not me because my truck won't start and it's parked right there. But all of our staff park at the, I walk every Sunday, but my truck won't start. But all the staff are parked on, on, on the very end down there, almost by pig and pint, to walk and pray, to pick up trash on their way and to pray for the day so that we can welcome guests. But... When we gather, we gather to pray, the staff do, right down the hall early, to pray for the day that the Spirit will work in your hearts, that God's will would be done in our assembly. But when you get together like a private meeting of insiders, that's different. And that's what is we need to see as an affront to God. And he's, the, the triclinium, by the way, 
face the atrium, which you think they would know better. You think they would know better because there's the insiders, the people in the triclinium, they would eat inside, which we're in Mississippi in middle of June. Like we, we can appreciate we're about to enter that season where there's a big difference between eating inside and eating outside, right? And uh, a friend invited me to a reunion on Friday uh, to have lunch up there at the uh, reunion country club. He's like, hey, I'll have a table outside. I'm like, look, I'd like the table inside if we could. I don't want to be picky because you're going to buy my lunch. But like, we want to be inside. If you're in the triclinium, you're inside, you're eating inside, you're eating first, and you're eating the best food. And so the people out there got the less food, and they, they came later. But if you owned a home particularly if you were wealthy, you invited people of equal social status. And Paul knows that that's going on. And, I, you know, I imagine, this is just my sanctified imagination, reading into the culture of the time. I imagine when they were confronted by people uh, in love, that I imagine they were like, what, what, what? We're, we're, doing, we're, we're doing what you do. We're not doing anything wrong. This is, what, this is, this is the protocol. It went in Rome, Rome, went in Corinth, Corinth. This is, there's nothing wrong with this. What? We're just fitting in with our culture. And Paul is saying, this is not the Lord's Supper. And so what went wrong? To recap, private supper, not a public celebration. Some were hungry, some were tipsy. Some overserved, some underserved, and it wasn't honoring God. It fit in more to the social status seeking, to the ladder climbing culture. And Paul is saying, no, this doesn't honor Christ. And so the second part of this sermon to 1 Corinthians 11 is not just what, oh yeah, don't you have homes to eat and drink in or you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Can I just say quickly, if you're following Jesus, you'll care about those who don't have anything. After the first service, my friend Cindy grabbed me and I was laughing and yucking it up with people, kind of shallow conversation. She was in tears. And she's been serving with this shower power downtown Jackson and been getting to know some people and loving them. They have nothing. And she hugs people that um, we, many ways, wouldn't want to hug naturally. And there's this family. She showed me a picture of two children, and their parents are meth heads. And they put them up at the Red Roof Inn and called Child Protective Services, and they haven't come to get the kids. And Cindy's convinced, man, if they came, they would get these kids. And what do we do? And listen, can I just stop here and say, if you're following Jesus, you're going to care about more than your comfort. Would you join us in prayer? Would you join us in generosity? Would you realize that your stuff is not your own? Would you liquidate your... Would you open-handedly say, God, I want to give my time and my money and my service to help the people around us? And into that spirit is the Lord's Supper. Many churches that I'm aware of, when they do communion, uh, they set up a benevolence offering that goes toward that. The idea, we'll get there in 1 Corinthians 16, we see the early church when they were collecting offerings in the 16th chapter, everybody was given, everybody needs to give, every gift is needed. And they made sure they were taking care of people. Don't you want to be that church? Don't, don't you want to be that faith community when we can say, I can say to Cindy, send me pictures of those children and let's see if we can do anything. And we ought to try, shouldn't we? As a faith family, we ought to try. All right, the second part of this sermon, back to the beginning. Paul says what went wrong, private assemblies, insider stuff, looking down on others. Jesus, by the way, the whole idea of communion is we follow a man. We follow the God man who displayed weakness, humility, and sacrifice. So how can we display superiority and arrogance and looking down on other people? And the church is kind of messed up. I'm not here to besmirch anybody uh, Churches uh, shouldn't be judged by their size. Can I say that? We, we do that all the time. It's a big church, small church, whatever. You can find the church you're looking for. I hope you find the church you're looking for. I hope it's here. But like, we don't judge a church by its size. But I know what we need to, what we need to stamp our foot on 
put our foot on the throat of this is um, celebrity pastors with limousines and green rooms and that aren't accessible and all. Like how, how do we look up and, and pocket these people who uh, follow a man who demonstrated humility and sacrifice and weakness? And Paul is writing saying, church, man, don't, do not get squeezed into the, into the culture. And he knew that they had been. He knew that they were, and so he had these strong words for them. So he goes back to the beginning. What's the beginning? Not the beginning of Genesis creation like we did last week, uh, but this beginning. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. He's saying, here's what he's saying, you already know this. He's saying to them, this is not new information. Y'all know this, which gives me an opportunity to drop a truth in this sermon that I do at least a few times a year. Uh, Pastor Rick Warren says that most of us are educated beyond our level of obedience. I want you to come to church and learn shiny new things. That'd be cool. I love it when I say something and you, uh, you, know, you write it down. I'm like, yeah, something new. They learned. Oh, yeah, great. That's cool. And we ought to have that from time to time. But I agree with this, Pastor. Most of us are educated beyond our level of obedience. You have this information. You know this knowledge. You know the next thing that you should do in following Jesus. But are you doing it? And that's what he's writing here. And he's saying, let's go back to the beginning. Okay, in these words, the Lord Jesus. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is, stay with me for you do this in remembrance of me ironically we're not taking communion today that'll be in two weeks but every time we do every sunday at every month at the end the last sunday it'd be at the fourth or fifth we take communion as a church family we say this verse often paul's repeating what jesus said on the night of his betrayal He's passing it on, which is our faith, isn't it? Wait, it all goes back to Jesus. I talked weeks ago about our growing up campaign, about being a three-chair church, and that we point and we look at the beginning, but every chair goes back to the one that Jesus sat in. And these things have been passed on. He said, Jesus did this for you. So let me say, because there's a stern warning and people died who violated this. So now that I have your attention, Paul's saying this about Jesus. He's saying he did this for you. And what's wrong with our churches, and it's reflected in our preaching, and if I failed, I'm sorry. But we need to mention every time we gather that God is for you. He is for you. Despite the angry posters and the people with the bullhorns, and I don't see them in Fondren uh, now that the abortion clinic closed. I don't see them like I used to. But we, oh yeah, they're at Target, okay. But they're yelling and these religions, they're yelling and they're yelling and they're yelling. And if we're not careful, we're conformed into this um, thought, a faulty view that God is against people. So let me quote a verse that everybody knows, even if you're not a believer. You could be an ardent skeptic and you know John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes him would not perish but have eternal life. But the next verse, not as many of us know, Jesus said, for I did not come into this world to condemn the world, but to love the world. And so who needs to hear it today? I want to say to everybody and no one, there's no asterisk. There's no fine print on this one. There are no exemptions. He is for you. He loves you. And the idea of communion is to make it simple. The unvarnished, full frontal truth that Jesus is for you and that he loves you. If you know Christ, can I remind you that he will never leave you or forsake you? 
Hebrews 13. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't have a wilderness experience or loneliness or depression or you won't have battles of God's distance, feeling distant from him. But I do want to say that God is for you. And there are times when he wants us to experience his manifest presence. Because sometimes uh, my prayers bounce off the ceiling as the cliche goes. Sometimes I don't feel the nearness of God. And sometimes um, I'm, just, I'm just grinding through and holding on to the promises that my feelings are betraying. That he is with me. That he's got this. We sang that song with tons of repetition. Beautiful song, by the way. Let's do that one again. But he will never fail me. But sometimes it feels like he's failing us. But he's with you. He's always with you. But I, I believe this. And save room in your theology and your experience for this. There are times that God is always with you. We don't have to pray, be with me, Lord. But we pray that all the time. Be with me, Lord. But he's with you. But there are times when he wants you to feel his manifest presence. And to know that you're loved. And this is simple stuff, but we need to hear it. May we never be a church that goes beyond this theology. I told the first service a, a true story years ago. Sue, you'll remember this. Um, her dad, before we lost her father eight years ago, he was just really good to us and treated us to a lot of vacations. And he would take us, uh, many times over, took us to the Jersey Shore, where he originally is from. So we would vacation up there. And we went, and our kids went. We went, we were newlyweds. The people that couldn't make the wedding in California came to the Jersey party that summer. And so he just kept that going. And I remember there was a time we flew up there with all three kids. Our youngest was a baby baby, and our daughter, our, our only daughter in the middle, was probably three years old. And she wouldn't sleep that first night. And, man, she was getting the best of me. And these days are so long past us, praise God. But it was just, I, I remember this one well. I'm like, oh, you know, your blood pressure goes up, and you're, you're vacillating between love and hatred and all this stuff. And, and I, but I just, I, I took Haley, I told Susan, I got this, which is always a bad sign, right, when a man's like, I got the baby. And I, I took her, not a baby, but a little girl, and I, I, I picked her up out of her bed and put her in the stroller. And lo and behold, a few minutes later, I'm pushing my daughter um, in a random um, beachfront uh, property in New Jersey, just going up and down the street at, a, uh, I think it was like 2 in the morning. And I was so worried that she was waking everybody up. You know, the family's going to hate us because of our daughter. And something happened in me, and I just looked down on her, and I was just... Uh, filled with the emotion of a father and I was against her seemingly but I was so for her and overwhelmed with how much I was for her and I picked her up instinctively and I just picked her up I didn't really need the stroller I think I started dragging it and I picked her up and I twirled her and the ocean was there and, and I, I twirled her around and I kissed her neck and shoulder and she was kind of hitting me in a playful way. Daddy, I love you. Daddy, you're so silly. And my question for you is, was she any less my daughter before I held her? Did my love become greater when I picked her up and twirled her around? No, she's mine. She's my daughter. And my love for her was great. But there was this time when I said, I really am going to manifest it toward her. And I'm so glad that my father's heart responded that way. And I believe, listen, Paul said, we're not going to read the verse today, but it's in chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, read it. But he says, this is proclamation. He, how we take communion matters. So we tell people, outsiders, we say welcome, but if you don't know Jesus, you don't participate. But watch us, because we're saying something really important about what we believe. So he's saying that God is for you. And he's saying, he uses this word, participation. And that word in the Greek means closeness, nearness, even affection. 
Participation is a word that maybe we, it's not a sexy word to us. It doesn't evoke, but in Paul's time, when he talks about participation, he's like, you're drawing close. You're being silly with one another. On one hand, you're very serious, but you're being silly. You're loving each other, and you're showing brotherly and sisterly affection as a family. God is for you. And here's the thing about this Greek. I remember I told you last week, history, background, culture, context, and language. And the thing about language is in the Greek, when he says, do this, I've done this for you, do this in remembrance of me. My, this is my body for you. There we go. For you. You is not singular. You is plural. And you see why private supper parties would be an affront to God. God set up a new kingdom and a new family and a new community. And he says, welcome and invite and include. But this is us together. The word communion has common words. Common. I just used one. Common and community. That we are in this together. So, church, what do we have in common? Anybody want to answer out loud? Probably not. Y'all know I'm full of trick questions. What do we have in common? Well, we all go to Fondren Church. Is that the answer I'm looking for? We all go to Fondren Church. What's that? We're all going to die? What? We all love God? Oh, yeah. Uh, cover his ears. We all, we all are going to die. We all love God. All right? I tell you, don't do, don't do crowd participation. Um, no, that's a great answer, young man. Awesome. Um, Jack knows what's up. Listen, yes, but also, I mean, do we all, did we all vote for the guy in office? Do we all vote for the guy that's not in office? Did we all, do we all cheer for the same team? What do we have in common? Let me offer it to you. Let me offer it to you. We're all deeply flawed, but radically forgiven. And this should be the expression of church, which means, y'all, we're, we're doing something wrong, and I think I'm to blame for some of this. So y'all help me out here. But there's a watching world that's like, y'all, I'm not going to church because all those sinners and all those hypocrites. But that's the very message that we're saying. We're not disagreeing with that. We're saying, come on in because we are deeply flawed. There's no triclinium here. There's no elevation. When I was a young man, I went to a church like the pastor sat there and the music minister sat there. The education is like these thrones, you know, and they sat there and I'm not being critical. I guess I am. But like, uh, you know, it's like, you know, they're, they're high and they're lifted up. But like we're, communion is the time for us to all get our feet dirty. It's the time for us to all say, I'm deeply flawed. And here's the thing. When you take communion, here's the picture from the early church. It's not uh, Leonardo da Vinci's European depiction of tall chairs and, you know, stuffy positions. It's reclining, it's supper, it's communion, it's togetherness. And we're all saying that we're broken. We're all saying that we need a Savior and we, we have it in Jesus Christ. So there's a third part to this message before we close. We've lo looked at what went wrong and we've gone back to the beginning. And the third part is this, it's a wake-up call. So let's close with the hard part. Lauren, y'all go ahead and make your way up because you'll be playing music in just a minute and we'll be out of here. But listen real quick to this next verse. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, uh-oh, we're all in trouble, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. How many of you feel unworthy? Can I tell you how often I feel unworthy? You ready? Every day. Every day. I mean, there are times I'm honored to be a pastor. I'm honored to be your pastor. Sometimes when I'm in public, y'all go, go, hey, this is Robert. Or you, when you, this is my friend, Robert. When y'all say, this is my pastor, Robert, can I tell you, that just means more to me. I'm like, yeah, this is their church, and I'm their pastor. But maybe I don't want you to know this part, but I'm not worthy 
I don't feel worthy. Yet the scripture tells me to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, Colossians 4, many other places. But I'm not worthy. So this doesn't mean that you don't have besetting sins and ongoing struggles. This doesn't even mean that you're not overwhelmed by your sin right now. So let me, without giving you the whole scripture, let me give you a couple of components here. There's this next verse. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. What did Socrates say in this similar era of the history of the world? The unexamined life is not worth living. So examine your life. See what's happening. Paul would say to the church in Corinth in another place, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Can I say that I'm pointing at you? Examine yourself to see that you're in the faith. That's a good one. Examine my heart and see what's happening. Let me give you the next part here because there's a couple of things to guard against. All of us feel unworthy because we all are unworthy. But be careful that you don't possess a spirit of defiance. Again, this is different than I am blank. My name is blank and I struggle with and I'm overwhelmed by myself. That's different than a spirit of defiance. And a spirit of defiance is I know these areas of my life and they're not surrendered. I would say to you, don't take the Lord's Supper. We also need to be careful, and this is a full frontal in this passage, we need to be careful of a spirit of division. I don't know if we have verse 33 up on the screen. If we don't, I'll quote it. There it is. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, what? You should all eat together. No private rooms, no VIP where, you know, Jack Nicholson's in the very back of the, the room smoking a cigar with a couple of the Los Angeles Lakers, and it's just y'all. and have none, none of that. All of us together, we welcome everybody. Y'all read any Bob Golf? Read some Bob Golf. If, you, if you're a Scrooge or stingy or not a hospitable or don't want to walk up your home or don't want to open up your home, read some Bob Golf. He's a follower of Jesus. Cares about love and justice in our world. And he'll, he'll rock your world if you read any of his books about just well, being a welcoming church. And so here's the freak out part. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. How do you interpret this verse? Well, I want to share with you two quick stories. The first is a man named D.A. Carson. I, I looked at his commentary to see what D.A. Carson says about these, this passage that's tough to hear. And he tells a story of um, a pastor friend of his who was pastoring a church of 200 people. That didn't matter, but it gives you a little context here. But he, he's pastoring a church and he just said sin was running rampant in his church. And so he was like, even the leaders were sinning and there was division. They were at each other. He's like, I just, I was fed up. And he goes, so I committed to the Lord to pray for 90 days. Many of those days I was fasting involved in that. I prayed, I prayed that the Lord would change his church, change these people, or he would move me on. Now I'm not going to tell you if I ever prayed that prayer, but he did. He prayed this prayer. He's like, change these people or move me on. And D.A. Carson's friend told him that this church of 200 people, that that year he did 39 funerals that year. 39 funerals. So if you do the math, that's about 20% of that congregation. And the next year they had life and love and growth and baptisms. So stay with me because you're some of you are furrowing your, furrowing, furrowing your brow. For some of you, and I sat with a young man this week. He was at the earlier service. I sat with him. And some of you are this way. You think that every bad thing that happens in your life is God's judgment. But some of you, some of us, also on the other end, it's just as faulty of you. We think God, God ain't going to do anything to me. 
God can. In fact, grace, grace. I can defy him. I can deny him. I can run from him. I cannot surrender this area of my life to him. It doesn't matter because grace, grace, grace. And God will, he will give me what I want when I want it on my terms. He'll never judge me. And I just want to say to you, this is a freak out verse, but I would say to you, leave room for God's loving hand of discipline or judgment on your life. And stand with me and I'll close with this. I, my mom uh, has two brothers. They're preachers. They're pastors. I've been greatly influenced by Ben and Bill Yarber. Bill is home in heaven. Ben is still preaching at 87 years old. Well, they have a cousin. My mom and her two brothers have a cousin named Buddy. This is in the 70s. He was a believer in Jesus, not a pastor, but he struggled with alcohol. And they confronted him. They were worried about the danger that he was going to be causing to himself and to his family. And one night, as the story goes, my mom and her brothers confronted their cousin Buddy and said, you, you've been drinking, haven't you? And he said, I'm not. His last words were, if, if I'm drunk, God strike me down. He got in his car and he left their house that day, left the house that day. And that car that he was driving, solo passenger, flipped and he died. And those who worked the wreck, the Mississippi Highway Patrol said they had, there was no other car, no pedestrian, no animal, nothing, no skid marks that would be a part of that. They couldn't explain this. And I'm just saying to you, it's a weird note to end on. But I'm just saying to you, leave room because there is a time. I want you to have room in your theology because we preach grace as, as much as anybody. But leave room in your theology because 1 Corinthians tells me, and I'm passing it on to you, that there's a time when God says, I've had enough. I've had enough and I will correct this. And you know what? He does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. May it be used among your people. Lord, may we be inclusive. May we understand grace and the welcome mat and the ways that we can wrongly relegate people to the outside. So help us in love be a community that follows hard after you and takes sin seriously and that points people to a Savior. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, the altar is open for prayer. You come today. We can pray for you.